0: He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bojernus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Father, we are grateful for your word. We sit under the authority of your word. We stand on the foundation of your word. It's your word, it's your spirit that gives us life, that makes us who we are as your people. It's your word and spirit that change us. So, Father, I confess my inadequacies to change anyone here today. It's only you that can do the good, the deep work that's necessary in this room. And so we we confess that we're completely dependent, completely reliant upon the Spirit of God to come and do this work. That we would be transformed. Not for a moment, but for a lifetime. That tomorrow things would be different because of the work you're about to do in us right now. So, Father, help us to have that expectancy. Do it in a way that only you get the glory. Only you get the honor that you deserve. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Vince Lombardi, the uh, Hall of Fame legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, uh, came off the 1960 season. Green Bay lost the NFL championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. And uh, heading into 1961, he famously gathered his team around, this team of veteran football players who have been playing football a long time, held up a football before them and said, this is a football. Seems kind of dumb, like, You know, duh, we're we're professional athletes, we're professional football players, we know what football is. But his point was to go back to the fundamentals, to go back to the essentials, to not leave anything for granted, to not assume anything, but to start with the basics. This is a football. And he would go on to take this team through training camp, and they would emphasize the fundamentals. In 1961, they would win their first NFL championship, the first uh, of five of the next seven that they would win, including the first two Super Bowls. Crossing Church... This passage today, this passage is a football. This passage is fundamental, foundational to who we are as Christians and who we are as a church. This is a passage that has teaching that we will always come back to, we'll never get away from. Regardless of how many times you've heard it, regardless of how many times we say it, we're never going to get away from this. This idea of being disciples who make disciples, who follow Jesus, and seeing and experiencing gospel transformation. This is always who we're going to be. And so hear this passage this morning as that, that fundamental. We've, we told you from the very beginning as a church that we have not discovered this new way of doing church that no one else has figured out. Like we have reinvented something. We haven't. We're, we're trying as much as we can in our context, and our culture, with our people to go back to who the church was in the first century, to be the people of God, that the people of God have always been as the church. And so we're, we're, we're doing that. We're digging down. We're making sure more than anything else, we are disciples who make disciples. We are experiencing gospel transformation. That is way more important than who shows up on Sunday and how many people show up on Sunday. That's way more important than where our budget is, whether we're meeting budget or not meeting budget. That's way more important than the building or the lights or the, the sound of the music and what style of music we play or what the parking lot looks like or our children's ministry or all the other 10,000 things that churches can focus on and get distracted by and get away from being a disciple-making church who makes disciples and seeing gospel transformation. This is essential to who we are. And so as we walk through this passage today, I'm, I'm calling you to kind of do a self-assessment. Like, where are you in this process of being a disciple of Jesus? Where are you at in following Jesus? Where are you at in being a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples? Who are you pouring into? Who are you calling and looking around at your life and saying, go with me. Let's follow this man together. And then do an assessment of... Uh, Of our church. Assess where we are as a church. Are we training you well? Where are we not training you well? Challenge us to do better. Hold us accountable. Are we coming after you when you begin to slip? Because we said we would do that. Are we pursuing you when you need to be pursued? Because we said we would do that. Are we holding you to the, the high standard that it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because we said we would do that. And if we're not doing that well, let us... No, as David Platt said Friday night in Secret Church, is the gospel spreading through you or stopping with you? Is the gospel spreading through you or stopping with you? Is the gospel today going to stop at those doors? Or are we going to carry it with us and spread it to the city that we're about to encounter in the next few hours? Now, the fundamental passage I'm referring to is the, is the one where Jesus goes on the mountain and calls his disciples. But let's get the context. So let's go back, pick up where we left off last week in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. These verses follow on the heels of the passage we walked through last Sunday when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, infuriating the religious leaders. It's a really hard word to say. So much so that they were ready to kill him. Like, can you imagine being that mad at somebody that you're like, they got to go. I can't just disagree with them. I can't just debate with them. They've got to be snuffed out. And that's where Jesus was. This animosity from the religious leaders had been building all through chapter 2 to this point where they realize this guy has great power, has great authority. He's not going to fit inside of our little box. And so he's got to die. He's got to go. Yet... Jesus, knowing this, doesn't go into hiding, doesn't call the authorities in to investigate this plot against his life. He doesn't quit doing ministry. He continues to pursue people, continues to allow the crowds to come to him. In fact, his largest crowds yet, this, this could be the peak of his popularity or one of, definitely one of the peaks of his popularity, seen from all the regions that were coming near this man that to, to had this power to heal diseases and cast out demons and teach with authority. Now, we, we think sometimes that because of our silly children's illustrated Bibles, that, that can be good, but sometimes cannot be good, that, that this picture is, is basically what Jesus' ministry was like, that it was just idyllic, that it was peaceful, that it was serene, that it was slow, and that people just gathered around him at his leisure, and, and that's what his ministry looked like. We forget, next picture, that oftentimes, if you read the Gospels carefully, that's what his ministry was like. Like, we want to sign up for the first picture. Yeah, let's sit at the feet of Jesus and hear the birds chirping and the, the water running and the grass growing. But, but that, no thanks. I'm out. I'm not, but that's what it was. You, you just can't even begin to fathom what it was like to be Jesus, to have this power, power and authority, to demonstrate it to this, this culture, this region, and just have masses of people. It says there in, in verse um, 9, ready to crush him. Like, I've got to get away from these people. I've got to get in a boat into the water so that the people can't come into the water. And I can stand and teach them. And, and the reason that we see this is because of where they're coming from. What's significant about the crowds, if you remember back to chapter 1, people were flocking to John the Baptist from Jerusalem and Judea. Now, look at the regions. And I, and I put a map up here. For you map nerds, you're going to enjoy this. For you who aren't map nerds like me, just think of this as a pretty picture. Um, You have the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea on the left, on on the western side. You have the little small Sea of Galilee colored in to the north and to the south. You have the larger Dead Sea. And so it tells us that they were flocking to Jesus from all of these different regions. Now the arrow points to Capernaum. That's about where Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee. That was kind of his home base of ministry. And it says that they were flocking from Galilee. So all those little towns around the Sea of Galilee, they were coming to Jesus. It says that they were coming from Uh, Tyre and Sidon which is an area to the north they were coming from Perea which is an area beyond the Jordan is what the passage says across the Jordan River they were coming to him from Jerusalem and Judea of course and they were coming to him from as far away as Edomia now the significance of all of these different regions being named is the progression notice in the passage from the Galilee this is where Jesus had been from Jerusalem and Judea this is a strictly Jewish area kind of the, the focal point of Judaism Jerusalem and Judea Edomia is a region 120 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, south of Judea. They were considered Israelites because they were descendants of Esau, the Edomites. But they were considered a mixture of Jew and Edomites. Then you have beyond the Jordan, that's Perea. That would include Jews and Gentiles. And then it names Tyre and Sidon, which was two cities on the Mediterranean Sea. And they were strictly Gentiles so as you always see in passages like this in the New Testament, you always move from Jewish to a mixture of Jew and Gentile to strictly Gentile lands because that's how the gospel has progressed, will progressed. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Jewish lands, Samaria, mixture of Jews and non-Jews, And to the ends of the earth, Gentile lands, which eventually, by God's grace, made it to Monroe in Louisiana, in the United States, that we could hear and believe the gospel. And that's how the gospel moves, that's how the gospel progresses from Jewish through a mixture of Jew and Gentile to Gentile lands to the ends of the earth. What's amazing is that Jesus already has this diversity, this mixture of people this early in his ministry. We're already seeing what he said would happen. People from all nations and all tribes and all languages and all tongues coming and finding unity, finding this relationship with Jesus, centered around Jesus. And this is where we're headed. As as Platt said uh, Friday night in Secret Church, there's still thousands of people groups who have yet to hear the gospel, who are dying and going to hell. We know there are going to be people in those people groups with us in heaven. We know, the Bible says, there are going to be people from every language, tribe, tongue, and people gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ. And so we are called to be sent to those people groups to get the gospel to them so that they can hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and become our brother and our sister in Christ. It's always been the plan of God. It's always been the the ministry of Jesus to do this. And this ministry that Jesus is doing for them is a pretty good summary of what his ministry had been about so far. Healing, exhorting authority over demons, seeing these demonic forces, really incredible. It it says that they're confessing that you are the Son of God, which is an incredibly accurate confession about who Jesus is. And it says they're falling down before him, if you notice that in the language of that passage. This is a, a language of a subordinate bowing before someone who is superior to him. Literally, these demons are bowing before King Jesus. As he calls them out of these people and tells them to go away. Confessing who he is. This has been his ministry. Except now, it comes under the cloud and the threat of this outright opposition from the religious leaders. And his ministry has also included so far and now again, this calling of people to follow him, join him in his work. And it's through these verses that I want to walk through four fundamental aspects to being a disciple or follower of Jesus as seen in Jesus calling these 12 men to follow Him, to be His apostles. These, these four things are so fundamental to being a disciple of Jesus that for someone to refuse these, for someone to say, these aren't my experience, then, then I would say, you're not a disciple of Jesus. Like, these are essential. Like You can't be a disciple without having experienced these things. It's that important. And The first thing we see is that a disciple of Jesus is one who is called and desired by Jesus and follows Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is one who's called and desired by him, and he follows, or he, she follows Jesus. In the parallel account of this, in Luke 6, we read that he, before he called these men, he spent the entire night in prayer. So Jesus calling these 12 men was incredibly important, especially when you consider who he was calling. And it says in verse 13 that he called those whom he desired. Literally in the Greek, it reads summoned those He willed. He summoned those whom He willed to follow Him. And what we see in verse 13 and what we see in the rest of the Bible is that our relationship with Jesus begins when He calls us. It's Jesus that determines the call. Like we just had the NFL draft the last few days. And this this past weekend, it's all about the players, right? Right? Who's talented enough, big enough, strong enough, fast enough, smart enough to be a first round pick? And players go through all these hoops to prove themselves, and hopefully their name will get called and and be selected by a team. Um, But with Jesus, the emphasis is, is not on us, the emphasis is on Him. He who calls. It's not, look how amazing those people are. Of course, Jesus would call them. It's, look how amazing it is that Jesus would call those people. Look at them. They're a mess. And, and that's what these 12 men were, and that's what we are. It's what God's people have always been. It's not, of course we're super, well, of course Jesus would call us. It's why in the world would he, he call us. It's how amazing and gracious he is that he would call us. We saw this back in chapter 1 when Jesus first called these disciples, and we mentioned that it's a progression, that he would call them, they would follow him for a while, they would go back to their life. We'd call him again, where there came a point in time, and this is it, where he called his disciples and they left everything and they followed him full time from now on. They didn't go back to fishing or any of their other jobs until he actually died on the cross, was buried in the grave, and then they, they went back to fishing in that period of time between his resurrection and ascension. But from now on, they're, they're in. They're all in. And we talked about how usually a Jewish rabbi would not call disciples, but potential disciples would come to a rabbi kind of present their resume and say, here, look how amazing I am. Can I follow you? Can I learn your ways? So the fact that Jesus would go after these men who had already been rejected by the rabbinical schools, had already been rejected from that whole sphere of life, these men who are just fishermen, common everyday men, tax collectors, sinful people, he would call them to follow him is shocking. Just as shocking it is that he would call us to follow him. But that's where it begins. This is true in in our relationship with Christ. It didn't begin with you seeking Jesus. It began with Jesus seeking you, coming after you. Think about it. It's God who created us. Like who in here chose to be born? Who in here chose the family that you chose to grow up in? Whether it was a, a healthy family or whether it was an unhealthy family. Whether you stayed with your birth mom or whether your birth mom and father... Gave you it for adoption. Nobody made that choice. Who in here chose to be male or female? Nobody. Like I know today that's a big issue. And people are, are having surgeries and therapies to change that. But their chromosomes are still their chromosomes. Either XX or your XY. You can't change that. Because God determined that. Right? Nobody chose that they would be born in America. In the land of the free. In the home of the brave. And where, where there still is freedom of religion for now. Nobody made those choices. Yet, all of those things that determine so much of who we are, God chose, God initiated, God created for us that plays such a huge part in determining who we are and the fact that we are believers today because we had the opportunities to hear the gospel. So, if God is so sovereign over our physical life, He is equally as sovereign over our spiritual life. Equally. Like, we're, we're not born with a bent toward God. We're born with a bent away from God. We talk about this a lot. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, You were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Like, this is how we're born. No one is born a Christian. Nobody. Like you're not born in relationship with God. Because we are human, we inherit a sin nature all the way back to Adam and Eve. We're not born with a heart for God, but a heart that rebels against God. So unless God intervenes and comes after us, we won't seek Him. You see, the miracle of His grace is not that He saves some and not others, the miracle of His grace is that He saves any. Because all of us only deserve hell, judgment, condemnation. That's all we've earned. That's it. Because of our nature, our sin nature that manifests itself in sinful actions. So He has to seek us first. Jesus made this clear in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. God initiates this relationship. Just as he chose Abraham and the nation of Israel to be his people before they ever chose to follow him, so he chose you and me. And this helps us. This helps us fight against this tendency to think that we played a part in our salvation, that we chose him, that there's some aspect of our salvation that we can take credit for. Why are you a Christian? Well, I was smart enough to just figure it out. Or I was religious enough, I just did enough good things to where finally God just accepted me in. There's no aspect of your salvation that you could take credit for. There's no aspect of your salvation you could stand before God one day and say, I did that, that's that's my part. It's all him, it's all his initiation, it's all his empowering. This humbles us remember, no, before the foundation of the world, he chose you. Salvation is his work. He gets the glory. He gets the worship and the praise. But, guys, this also helps us fight our tendency to think that we're unworthy, right? All we see is our failures and inadequacies. All we see is, is where we don't measure up, where we haven't done everything He's called us to do. Like this week, we can make a list, put it on the wall. This is where I didn't obey Him this week. This is where I failed Him this week. This is where I let Him down. And some, some of us can be so beat down by that that we forget He chose you. He chose you. Not when you cleaned yourself up, but right where you are today, right now, this week, at your worst. He chose you. He wanted you. He came for you. He paid the price, loved you enough to sacrifice His life for you to bring you in and be his son, his daughter. So be, be aware of the worthiness that that gives your life. You're worthy because he chose you. You're not worthy and then he chose you. You're worthy because he chose you. You're his. You have value because of that. There's many times in my life where I've been overwhelmed by my inadequacies and failures. What I have failed at, what I can't do, who I'm not. And thankfully, the Spirit helps me preach the gospel to myself. And I'll just say to God, "Look, God, you chose me, right? You wanted me to do this. You wanted me on your team. I didn't go looking for this. You came after me to do this. Because that's where it starts. It starts with Him. But once that initiating work is done in us, notice it says that we follow Him. It says in that passage, uh, verse 13, that they came to Him. So when God... Does this When Jesus does this, he, he calls you whom he desires. The reaction is you, you're going to follow him. You're going to go after him. You, you, you can't help but do that when you've been transformed. So these 12 came to him. We follow him. It's what disciples or followers do. John 20, ten twenty seven. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I had a seminary professor who uh, loved to tell us a story about one of his professors who traveled to Israel years ago, probably in the 50s. And he was uh, watching and gathering around and studying shepherds there in the in the local Palestine area uh, as they tended their sheep. And he was amazed one day when all these shepherds from all these flocks, dozens of flocks, brought all their sheep to this watering hole, and he just stood back and watched these sheep just get all mingled up together. And he's sitting there thinking, "This is this is a disaster. This is chaos." Like, How is these shepherds going to separate all these sheep after they're through watering and drinking water and resting and all this stuff that they're doing? So after so much time passed, one of the shepherds walked over to the side, headed up this walkway they went up this hill, and he just began to call. This professor was amazed at one little ewe lamb over here that stood up, kind of dusted herself off, and began to go to her shepherd. And another one over here, and another one over here, and another one over here. All the sheep... That were that shepherd's sheep knew his voice. And they got up and followed him. Because that's what a flock does. Follow the voice of their shepherd. And that's what we do as followers of Jesus. So a disciple of Jesus is one who's called by him, desired by him, and follows him. And for many in this room, you've experienced that. So my encouragement for you today is this. Remember that call. Remember him coming after you. Saving you bringing you from the path of destruction to the path of life, bringing you out of darkness into light. And if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. You don't have to live without the hope that is Christ. The Holy Spirit, A trust, is calling you right now, pleading with you. See Jesus. See the beauty of Jesus. Hear the gospel that this man who was God in the flesh would lay down his life for you pay the price for your sins, give you credit for his righteous life so that through Jesus you could come alive in him and become a new person and begin to follow your shepherd. Secondly, a disciple of Jesus is one who gets a new identity. A disciple of Jesus is one who gets a new identity. See this in the story as it says there in verse 14. uh, The one place that we see it, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles And you actually see it in some of the apostles there in verse 16. Simon, he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, he gave the name Sons of Thunder. So some of them are actually literally renamed. But all 12 of them were renamed or given this name Apostle. It's very interesting language there, that word appointed or calling them apostles. The word appointing literally means to create. Like when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek about 150 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, in this version of the Bible called the Septuagint, when those translators were looking for the Greek word for create, they used the same exact word that's used right here, create. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same exact word is used right here when it says, He appointed them apostles. In other words, Jesus is creating from nothing this group of men called apostles. He's creating them. He's fashioning them. He's forming them. It's not like they went through training and they proved themselves or earned themselves so that he had to give them this degree like we do for college. He's calling them from from being nothings and nobodies into being these 12 men. He's making them right now, in this instance, these apostles. And the fact that it's 12 is incredibly significant. Like if you remember in, in Acts chapter 1, uh, Judas had betrayed Christ, and in his sorrow, his misery, he didn't repent, but he killed himself. And so they had 11 apostles or disciples. In Acts chapter 1, they're in the upper room. Jesus ascended to heaven They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And what do they do? They go through the process of appointing a 12th apostle. You couldn't have 11. You had to have 12. Not 13, not 10, not 14, 12. Had to be 12. Why? Well, this conjures up this idea of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's crucial to have 12. Jesus is reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel. He's not replacing Israel, but he's remaking, recreating this people who will follow him under this new covenant. If you think about Moses on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, going up on the mountain while the 12 tribes who came from the 12 sons of Jacob, while these 12 tribes were gathered around Sinai waiting for God's covenant, God's law to to define their relationship with him, so that through those 12 tribes God could demonstrate his glory his grace his, his commands to the world so now Jesus goes up on a mountain like Moses to create these 12 men who would be the foundation of the church through whom God would demonstrate his glory his grace his love his law to the entire world this is a the new covenant A new gathering of 12. In fact, these 12 men, it tells us in Matthew will sit in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a reconstituting of God's people under the new covenant. And these apostles, which means literally sent out ones, these men will become the, what we say, capital A apostles of the church. So we still have the apostolic gift that people in a church can have. So think of like a church planter. But these men are the capital A apostles. Like there, there were these men and no one else. And they become the foundation on which the church is built. Like Acts 2.42. It says the early church were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Ephesians 2.19-21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul would be added to that number, and what we find throughout the rest of the New Testament is these capital A apostles were men who saw the resurrection of Jesus, men whose authority the church recognized, and through these men, while the the New Testament scriptures were being written, while they're being collected and compiled and preserved, these men would give the New Testament its authority. So like all the New Testament books have to either be written by an apostle or come through the influence of one of these 12 apostles, plus Paul. So like Mark is not one of the apostles, but Mark is written under the influence of Peter. Luke is not one of the apostles, but Luke is written under the influence of Paul, one of the apostles. And so all the New Testament books had to carry with it the apostolic authority. And when you look at the other books that were being circulated at that time, the primary reason they weren't accepted by the church is because they didn't have apostolic authority. They weren't part of these 12 men. Now, here's the deal. Some denominations will elevate these gods to this place of sainthood that God never intended, like the Christian version of Marvel Avengers or something. You know, Peter's is Incredible Hulk, and uh, maybe John and James, they're Spider-Man, and Iron Man, and maybe uh, Paul is Captain America or whatever. Like these Christian superheroes who had powers and did things that nobody had ever done. That's not what God ever intended. It's not what God ever wanted. If you look through the rest of the the New Testament, you see that these guys, when they were brought before the religious establishment, the reaction of the establishment was always, who are these guys? These guys are a joke. They haven't been to our schools. They're untrained. They're unlearned. They're from the backwoods and and nobodies and nothings. Yet what they could not deny is that these men had power, and these men, it tells us in Acts, had been with Jesus. They could not deny that. That was the identity of these 12 men. They weren't impressive on their own. They were impressive because of their relationship to Jesus. Capital A Apostles were amazing because of that. We experience this similar change in identity when Jesus calls us and makes us a new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. It would be like if the Rams called me this past week. The Rams had number one draft pick. And they said, Jared, we're going to select you number one as our quarterback of the future. And you're like laughing, like... Right, right, really, please. But what if I showed up? What if it happened? What if I showed up in the fall, first game, I throw four touchdowns and 350 yards? People were like, what? This guy didn't play high school football in high school, much less college. Where did he come from? Who is that? In a, in a much greater way, that's similar to this new identity that comes from nowhere that we receive through Jesus Christ. When we become this new creation, we are indwelt indwelt by the very presence of God. Who are we to be indwelt by God? Look at yourself. Look at me. Who am I to be indwelt by a holy God? Yet that's what He does when He calls us, creates new life in us, and makes us a new person. God moves into the neighborhood so that through our lives His name will be made known through this new identity. Before Christ, the Bible calls us, what? Lost, dead, blind, in the dark, children of wrath, citizens of the kingdom of darkness, agents of Satan. But once Christ moves in the neighborhood, who are we in Christ? Holy, blameless, light of the world, Salt of the earth, children of God, alive in Christ, found, forgiven, redeemed, born again, born from above, adopted sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, co-heirs with Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ, His people, His sheep, A nation of royal priests, overcomers, saints, righteousness of God. And I could go on. When does he call us those things? When we make it to heaven? When we've done enough to prove that, yeah, that's who we are? No. Throughout the New Testament, he says that about us right now. He writes this to his people right now. To the dumpster fire that was the church in Corinth. He called them saints and those sanctified in Christ Jesus. He looks at you on your worst day and says this about you because your identity is not rooted in what you do, what you've done. Your identity is rooted in who Christ is, what Christ has done. It's not rooted in your performance. It's rooted in the performance of Christ. So this identity that he gives you is based upon Christ, and it never changes. It's always true of you because God sees you through Christ. Church, rest in that. Worship from that. Serve Him from that. Be devoted to Him from that. That is how your Father in heaven sees you always. Always. He he cannot see you any better. That's who you are, Christian. Christian. Thirdly, a disciple of Jesus is one who lives in relationship with Jesus and other disciples. A disciple of Jesus is one who lives in relationship with him and other disciples. Look back again at verse 13. It says, He went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, and he named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them. You see, the first aspect of following Jesus is not what you do, but it's who you are with him. Another distinction between Jesus and the typical rabbis in the first century. The, these rabbis, the typical Jewish rabbi, would tell their followers, follow me as I teach you how to follow the Torah, Old Testament law. Jesus, who's the son of God, God in the flesh, he didn't care about being a typical Jewish rabbi. He says, follow me. Be with me. I I am the Torah come to life. Because I fulfilled all aspects of it. You just be with me and I'll show you what it means to obey the the law. There will be a, a call, there will be a call to do something. We'll get to that in a second. But the doing in Christ always flows out of the being with Christ. We are in a relationship with Christ before we can do anything because of Christ. This language is all through the Gospels and New Testaments, but John 15, 5 is a good summary. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a few things pretty well. Is that what it says? Apart from me, you can do jack squat. Nothing. Nothing. Before you bear fruit for Jesus, you must abide in Jesus. You must be connected to Jesus as a branch is to the vine. And the way that happens is, yes, Jesus calls, we follow, we enter this relationship, Christ is in us, we are in Christ, and we begin to follow him. But remember, discipleship is always a relationship before it's a task, Discipleship is always a relationship before it is a task. The Bible actually speaks of our relationship with Christ as a marriage. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 1-3, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do, do bear with me. Like, listen to this, what I'm about to share with you. It's kind of crazy. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul is speaking to these believers, speaking to the church in the language of marriage that I've betrothed you, I've given you to this husband that is Christ. You are his bride. And we know that is the language of our relationship with Christ, as a bride is to her groom. In marriage, if you do it in a way that honors God, there are aspects of your marriage that you don't experience until you're married. I mean, obviously we're thinking of sex and physical intimacy and all sorts of physical intimacy. Right. You don't do that until you're married. Absolutely. But there's other things. Like, you you don't move in together until you're married. You don't uh, take, the, the wife doesn't take the husband's last name before they get married. That'd be kind of weird. You know, from now on, y'all call me this. You don't wear wedding rings until you get married. You don't open a joint checking account and share share money until you get married. You don't uh, decide who who's going to hold the remote control and who cleans the dishes. You don't fight over whose turn it is to take out the trash. You don't uh, decide who cleans up the kids' vomit and who cleans the bathrooms and who mows the yard. You don't really do any of that until you get married, right? And I've, I've told we were talking to Jesse and Chandler before and others. Uh, Jeremy and I always remember how weird that is. Like you don't do any of that stuff. You're these two single people doing life together. Yeah, an engaged couple, right? But then you go through the ceremony and a few hours later, boom, you do all of that. Which causes a lot of tension, a lot of problems. And your first year of marriage is like World War Four, right? It's just crazy because of all the selfishness that starts to come out of the, the pores of your flesh. And you've got to figure this out. And by God's grace, you will, and you'll be healthy and be good. But the the task of being a married couple doesn't happen until the relationship happens and you become a married couple. Then all of that flows from that. Jesus calls us to be in relationship with Him through salvation, being born again, made alive by Christ. Then we carry out the task of relationship. Guys, never lose sight of the fact that tasks flow from and circle back to the relationship the task that we do as a disciple of christ are relationally driven and for those of you who are like me you're very task driven this can be a great battle in your soul a great battle in your soul like we spend time in scripture check prayed today check came to worship gathering check I gave my tithe and offering, check. I sang some songs, check. Took communion, check. I was nice to my coworkers this week, check. I was nice to my husband, husband, wife and kids this week, check. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do, but is it flowing from resting in Jesus? Is it creating in me joy in Jesus and worship? Or am I just checking the boxes and going through the motions and doing the task? Because it's very, very simple to do that. So let me ask you, especially those of you who are task-driven, but really all of us, are you doing, or or rather the things that you are doing that you call your relationship with Christ? Things we talk about all the time, being a part of this church, being in a mission community, being in a DNA group, giving, serving, reading your Bible, praying, are all those things leading you to Jesus? Are all those things creating love in your heart for Jesus? Or is it just I'm checking the boxes, I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do. And and what happens if that's what you're doing? You're going to dry up and you're going to be miserable because it's not going to be enough. Being religious is not enough, and I don't care how gospel centered we say we are, we can be religious. We can be religious. If we're not getting back to Jesus and letting those things bring us to Jesus. But we aren't just called to be with Jesus. It says we're also called and created to be in relationship with each other. So this is not lone ranger ranger Christianity, right? Just me and God, as whoever that guy who sang that song said. It's us and God together. He calls 12 together into this one unit called the Apostles. With a foundation for billions that he would call together to be this one thing called the church. How many churches are there in Monroe? One. It's one church in Monroe. It's all there is. There's only one church. Jesus never calls us to be Christians in isolation. We're all, always called and created to be a part of this community. And it's a community that is a mixture of beauty and gobs of brokenness. Like if you look at the, the history of these men and, and some of the other gospel accounts bring out some of their... They're identifying qualities. You've got got a tax collector, Levi, or Matthew, and you've got a zealot. All right, tax collector uh, is known for uh, being faithful to the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome. So they're selling out their Jewish countrymen in order to collect taxes for Rome. Is how it's seen. And a lot of them are collecting extra on the side to to live a, a, a lavish lifestyle. So not only are they seen as traitors, they're seen as corrupt and evil. That's Levi Matthew. And you got the other disciple who's a zealot, who's known for their love, their passion, their faithfulness of the Jewish people. Like they would like nothing better than to raise up an army, march on Rome, and conquer Rome and restore Israel to its glory days under David and Solomon. And Jesus calls two of these men to be twelve of his disciples. Like, think of some common day parallels. Would Jesus call a follower of Donald Trump and a follower of Bernie Sanders? To be 12 of his disciples, he might, because that's how opposite they were, these two men. Yet he called them to do this life together. You've got Peter, who is a hothead, who's always getting himself in trouble with his mouth. You've got James and John, who are the sons of thunder, who have their mommy run up to Jesus one day and say, Jesus, which one of my little boys is going to sit on your right hand? Which one of my little boys is going to sit on your left hand? Elevating her sons above the other 10 disciples. You've got John, who's known for how much he loves Jesus, and if you read the Gospel of John, it's like the whole time his eye is, he's got one eye on Jesus, he's got one eye on Judas, because he just knows something's not right with Judas. He's stealing money from the poor, the benevolent fund, he's this uh, son of the devil. And So you've got tons of conflict, relational issues within these 12 men. Who are the foundation of the church, Right? These 12 men, they they are, I mean, if you got 12 men from any walk of life and put them together, it'd be all kinds of conflict and relational tension. Well, thankfully, when God chose who would be a part of the Crossing Church, he didn't put together a bunch of people who have different opinions about life and movies and coffee and uh, what's cool, what's not cool, and what's good on Netflix, what's not good on Netflix. I mean, obviously, was the best movie on Netflix and he didn't call a bunch of people together to do life who had different views on parenting or politics or theological secondary issues or, or anything like that. He called a bunch of people together to be the Crossing Church who are uniform in what is good and bad and right and wrong and fun and not fun, right? That's who we are. No, that is not who we are. We can be an absolute mess. Let's be honest. Let's not put on a pretty face every Sunday. Let's be real about who we are. Now some of this is, is personality and temperament dif- differences and, and we have different viewpoints on things that don't really matter. They only become primary issues when we elevate secondary issues and third and fourth area issues to places of, of too importance and they call it disunity. And sometimes we do that. We elevate secondary issues and then we'll start ostracizing each other and criticizing each other and and pointing um, each other to how you're wrong. And at that point, it becomes a sin. But it's not um, a spiritual gift. It's not a work of the Holy Spirit in you to be critical and ostracize people just because they don't do things like you do them or they don't see things like you see them. That's not a work of the Spirit in us. It's not a spiritual gift to be harsh and hurtful and call it your personality. It's not a work of the Spirit to form cliques and not be inclusive of every single person who's a part of the crossing church. That's not a work of the Spirit. So some of this will just exist because we're different people, but some of this is sin that needs to be confessed and repented of. Some of this is a lack of love because love covers a multitude of sins and we're harboring stuff against each other. We're holding stuff against each other. And we're not letting love cover a multitude of not just sins, but a multitude of differences and personalities and likes and things that we are attracted to and not attracted to. Love should just wash a lot of that junk away and not let it be elevated to the point where it's causing a barrier in our relationships with each other and a barrier in our relationships to the city. People will know when they encounter the crossing church how much we love each other. Jesus said this about these 12 men on the night of his arrest in John chapter 13. A new love I've given you and by the way that you love one another, they will know you are my disciples. So when you're tempted to want to get out because having deep relationships with each other is hard, remember God put all of us together to be family and to rub up against each other in ways so we could be made more like Jesus. Like Many times, the, the thought has gone through my mind, this temptation. This is hard. This is not easy, being in deep relationship with each other. Jennifer, let's, let's go put my resume in at some traditional church and just kind of show up on Sundays and play the game and be, be who we want to be and then live our life away from everybody else and nobody really has to know us. and We don't really have to know anybody. We ain't got to get up in their junk. They ain't got to get in our junk. Let's just go live a, a comfortable, easy life. And then gracefully the Spirit of God comes and says, no, you've done that. It's not what I've called you to. It's not what I've created you for. Because there is a work that God wants to do in us where we have a unity that is not just skin deep. We don't have some fake unity, unity that's as shallow as, as the veneer on a, on a fake wall. We have a unity that is deep. Not because we're all alike and we think alike and see everything exactly the same, but because we fight through all that junk. And we love each other even though we're different. And we forgive each other when we sin against each other. And we don't hold it against each other. Because He has called us, He has summoned us to this task to be this church in our city. And to demonstrate his love, his glory, his gospel through us. A very imperfect people who do sin against each other. Who do hurt each other. Because we fight through all of that for this deeper, greater unity. That's who we are. That's who he wants us to be. So whatever ways you need to repent. Whatever ways you need to press into that and let others press into you call you to that this morning to be that people in some mysterious way the spirit works through a very imperfect group of people to accomplish the purposes of god and to glorify jesus in our city and accomplish this work in us that only the holy spirit can produce and so see the beauty of this life together in a in passage romans 15 Romans 15 comes off the heels of Romans 14 where Paul was working through an issue that was causing division in the Roman church. Should I eat meat that's been offered to idols or not? And they, was causing, they were fighting. Secondary issue causing fighting in the church because, because they were allowing it to become a primary issue. So off the heels of that, he says this in Romans 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And look at this, not to please ourselves. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Christ did not live to please himself. He didn't come to please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And look at Paul's prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus. That together, you may with one voice glorify the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. Think about how Christ has welcomed us. Does he ever put up any walls to us? Does he ever hold back in any way? Is it not full embrace, full love, full grace and love and mercy all the time? Welcome each other in the same way. Lastly, a disciple of Jesus is one who is sent to preach his gospel, demonstrate his power. In verse 14... It says that he might be with them, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The only way we do this work is if we are in relationship with Jesus and community with other followers of Jesus. We're going to talk about more of this in the coming weeks, and so I'm going to save uh, some of this for then. But if you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, you will communicate the gospel and demonstrate the reality of gospel power in your life. Again, one of Platt's great quotes from Secret Church the other night. God did not save us so that we could smile and be nice people. He saved us so we could proclaim the gospel of Christ. Anybody can be nice to each other. Anybody can smile. You don't need Jesus for that. What makes us distinct is we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our lifestyle is not enough to proclaim the gospel. And he said this in the context of saying to those who say that, that all i got to do is live a good life and people will know I'm a Christian. and They'll believe in Jesus. No, they won't. Because in our culture, in our context, you can worship a false, false god like Mormonism and Islam and Jehovah's Witness and not proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ but look better than Christians who do believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't assume they're going to know by the way you live That's because of Jesus. You've got to tell them. And So where are you in your self-assessment? Where are you in your self-assessment? A disciple of Jesus is one who is called and desired by Jesus and follows Jesus. Have you done that? Are you experiencing that? A disciple of Jesus is one who receives a new identity are you resting in that are you pursuing that the disciple of Jesus is one who lives in a relationship with Jesus and other disciples what's healthy there what's not healthy and what needs to be repented and confessed and then a disciple of Jesus is one to the one who is sent to preach his gospel and demonstrate his power father we are so thankful for jesus that He came, that He lived, that He died, that He rose from the dead that makes all of this possible. So Holy Spirit, You have spoken to us this morning and we pray that You would enable our obedience in response to the word that You've spoken. Not just obedience right now, but obedience tomorrow and this week. We thank you that you're you're doing this work in us and he who began a good work in us will complete it. You're not going to give up on us. And so help us to worship you. Help us to sing. Help us to give. Help us to respond in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.